And as you look at the, those conversations, watch how they speak to him, you wonder how Job could endure that. How could he put up with what he's heard from these two friends? But I believe it's possible Job is hurting so much from this trial he's going through, uh, nobody can really add to his sorrow at this point. His sorrow is, has reached maximum level. And so what you have in Job chapter 9 this morning is, is Job's response to Bildad. He's speaking back now to the accusations that uh, Bild, Bildad ha, has shown against him. Uh, and really what he do, does not do here is attack th- this man. He does not attack Bildad. Uh, we've seen him do that, but not in this case. What you see in Job chapter 9 and what you're going to see as we go through this is a remarkable display of patience and humility. In Job's previous responses, you've heard words of despair, uh, outbursts of emotion. You've heard his tendency at times towards self-pity. And as you read that, you might think, uh, well, that's not really a very godly thing to do. We might be judgmental of Job because of his response uh, to the trial he's going through. Why doesn't Job just trust God more? Why don't he just put all his faith in God and get through this thing? And that's a very familiar response when we view the tragedy of somebody else. Uh, we've made this point several times already in the study. It's worth repeating. The sad truth is, many believers operate on the level of the same level as Job's well-meaning friends. We have no way to comprehend what a friend is going through, what trial they might be dealing with, and the struggle they're going through. Many believers don't even attempt to understand that. Many believers are much more interested in going to their theories as to why the tragedy occurred, rather than providing comfort to that person who's going through the difficulty. And even though that's what Job has faced as his friends have responded to his trial, never lose track of the patience of Job. In fact, that's mentioned to you in James chapter 5 and verse 11. Uh, James said, Behold, we count them happy which endure. You've heard of the patience of Job, have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Job, Job never becomes so desperate that he loses his patience. And as you look at his response to Bildad this morning, you're going to see one of the best examples of that as Job exercises patience in the, in the face of Bildad's blistering attack. He is calm, he is measured, he's responsible. So I'd like you to see, first of all, in the first two verses, the acknowledgement of Bildad's truth. The acknowledgement of Bildad's truth. Uh, now we understand, as you, if you remember back in chapter 8, uh, Bildad's accusations are not true. They're false. What he has said about Job is not the case. And so there's many things Job could have said to defend himself, and we've seen him do that in some of his past responses. In this case, what he does instead acknowledges the truth of what Bildad has said. And I want to make this important point again, and we said it more than once. Most of what Job's friends say is true. Most of what they say has a biblical base to them. They are off base at times, but the majority of the time, the principles they're operating by are accurate principles. It's the application of the truth they know that's the problem. And that's important for everybody who knows God's truth. Uh, this, there should be, uh, that should be the endeavor of every person here uh, to be consistently pursuing. We must make the consistent effort against those who would change the word of God in some way. We do not change God's word. We never change God's word. Uh, God's word has an authority that we don't even question. At the same time, never be so involved in defending God's word that you fail to accurately apply God's word. Misapplication of the word of God is as much a tool of the devil as is questioning the word of God. And much harm is done by somebody who takes the word of God and uses that book as a weapon against somebody else rather than as an instrument of comfort. And I've seen believers do that, and there's no way is that a beneficial thing. Beating somebody with the word of God, uh, some principle that is true, but not nearly necessary in the situation they're going through. So in verse 2, look at verse 1 if you would. Then Job answered and said, I know it is of a truth. But how should a man be just with God? Now, look at verse 2. You might want to circle that verse. 
That is an important question found in the Word of God. How should a man be just with God? He sidesteps Bildad's attack completely and answers one of the most basic questions of life. And I would propose to you folks this morning, there is no more important question to answer than that question. How is a man just with God? And if Job had had the good fortune of hearing the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he would have found the answer to that question. Go to Romans chapter 3 if you would. Romans chapter 3. The book of Romans is written to answer the very question that Job is asking. Uh, And I want you to look at this truth this morning. I know you know this truth. I know that if you're a believer here this morning, you understand this truth. You rejoice in this truth. But it's good to read it every so often. Romans chapter 3, look at verse 24. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. And just glory in these words. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior this morning, rejoice in the words you're going to hear in just a moment. Paul says this, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, what was the divine plan that was created in order for man to be just with God? Did God do it by ignoring our sin? Some would like to believe that. They would hope that God would do that. But that wouldn't work, because God could not be just if he just pretended our sin wasn't there. Our sin does exist. So instead, what God did, he paid the price for our sin. He paid the debt of our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. And because that debt was paid, God was just. He didn't ignore our sin. He paid for our sin. But because of how he did it, he was also able to justify any person who would trust in that payment for sin. How can a person be just with God? Job asked the question, how can a man be just with God? It is accomplished through the blood sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how a person is just before God. God has made no other way. There is no other provision. And God will not accept any other effort. A person must either accept God's payment for sin through Jesus Christ, or they pay for that sin themselves. The sin has got to be paid for. It's going to be paid for by you or by somebody paying that price for you. And Jesus Christ paid the price for us. And eternity is not settled and sin is not forgiven until faith is placed in the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The death where he takes our sin and places that sin upon himself and pays that sin debt for us. Praise God for that this morning. (laughs) How can a man be just with God through the blood sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? Beginning in verse 3 and going down through verse 15, Job, we see Job's acknowledgement of God's wonders. Job's acknowledgement of God's wonders. He first begins speaking of the God of wonders. Look at verse 3, if you would. Job chapter 9 and verse 3. It says there, if he will contend with him, he shall not answer him one of a thousand. Job declares a truth here that is, uh, what he's simply saying is this. There is not one in a thousand who can answer God. Not one in a thousand. There is no one in this world who can win an argument with God. We all may try to do that from time to time. We might try to convince God that our way is better than his way and our ideas make more sense than his ideas. But if we ever stopped ourselves and really realized what we were doing, we would realize how ridiculous that is. (laughs) What a crazy thing to do, to believe that somehow we have more wisdom and more discernment than God does. Paul makes this abundantly clear, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 14. He says that the natural man can never understand the things of God. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. 
And yet, if we look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10, there's an amazing revelation there. What he says is, natural man may not understand the things of God, but God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. We sang the song about it this morning. God has placed his spirit inside us. He now abides within us. And through that spirit of God inside us, God has given us understanding. But it is God's wisdom that's provided to us, not our wisdom. We have no right and no ability to argue with God about what he does. And the reason for that is he's God and we're not. (laughs) And that's all that needs to be said. He is God and we're not. But through his spirit, God gives us some understanding about his ways, and so we can accept those ways and accept what he allows into our lives. Now, it's remarkable to me to realize that Job has this patience this morning without the indwelling spirit. That's a remarkable thing. The spirit of God does not dwell inside Job, and yet he exercises this remarkable patience in the face of these attacks. And if that's true, then those of us on this side of the cross should be able to endure whatever he brings into our lives because not only do we have the word of God, we have the spirit of God dwelling inside us and he gives us spiritual understanding in all things as a result of that. So we can understand God's ways to some degree. We can understand God's plan to some degree because we have the spirit of God living inside us. So in verse 3, what Job says is, nobody can give an answer to God. Then look at verse 4. It says, he is wise in heart. And mighty in strength, who hath hardened himself against him, and hath prospered. Job says there is not one person who is strong enough or hardened enough to go against the will of God. It just simply can't be done. Even that one who believes that he or she has all the answers, that one who has all the education and all the experience to back them up, even that person will lose in a battle against the Lord. And yet there are people who step into that ring every day, You see them on your screens, you see you read their words, and they somehow believe that they're going to be the first one to win a match with God. The truth is, God's will will always prevail. God's ways will always be accomplished. No matter who may stand in his way, God's will will be done. And Job is answering his friends when he makes this point. Job tells his friends that if he truly had some secret sin in his life, he would commit uh, confess that sin immediately because he knows he could not get away from God's punishment by harboring that sin. And now what Job begins to do is amplify that point. He wants to show these friends, and really I'm sure reinforce to himself, just how great and how mighty God is and how foolish it is for any person to believe he can escape God's wrath by hiding some unconfessed sin. So beginning in verse 5 and going through verse 10, Job begins to speak of the wonders of God. The wonders of God. Look at verse 5. Speaking of God now, which removeth the mountains, and they know not, which overturneth them in his anger which shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble, which commandeth the sun, and it riseth not, and sealeth up the stars. Now, you'll never comprehend all that, so don't even try. (laughs) But that's the God you serve this morning. That's your God this morning. Notice he's talking there about the power of God, and he's talking about the natural occurrences that occurred upon the earth. Uh, He may be talking about Noah's flood when he speaks of the great rains and the fountains of the deep that were opened up upon the earth, producing water that was so strong that it moved mountains and shook the earth. Dark clouds came over the earth and across the earth, and the sun was hidden, and the stars didn't appear by night. That event had occurred just a few years prior, and so Job may be referring to that event as he speaks. But we know also Job's words have a future reference. There is another instance where Job's words speak to the time of the Great Tribulation when God will unload his wrath upon this earth and his fury upon this earth. And that anger will be so great. 
and his wrath will be so strong that the earth will be shaken and the mountains will move and the sun will be darkened and the stars will not shine. And those who stand upon this earth and challenge God will someday see the full wrath poured out upon them for the response they gave to him. But no matter what response uh, event Job's referring to this morning in, this, in these vert words, the point he's making is God has absolute control over his creation. Absolute control. He has control over all of it. God has set up the universe. God has established the laws by which the universe runs. And if God chooses to, he alone can overrule those laws and allow it to happen whatever he wants to happen to this earth. Folks, you serve an awesome God this morning. That word awesome only belongs to him. It doesn't belong to anything else. God only is awesome. And he, don't ever let anything or anyone or any event ever lead you to believe otherwise. You serve an awesome God this morning. Look at verse 8. He said, which, spreadeth alone, which alone spreadeth out the heavens and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. The sovereignty of God over all his creation. Listen to Psalm 135, 6. David says this. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in the earth, in the seas, and all deep places. Whatever God wanted to do, he did wherever he wanted to do it. And that's why they fight him so hard. That's why they try so hard through their philosophies and so forth to take him down. Because he has control over everything. We need to understand that God does whatever it is that he wants to do with his creation. And whatever he does is always the right thing. Always the right thing. God never does the wrong thing with anything that he does. He's always right in doing it. Look at verse 9. He says, which maketh Arcturus, Orion, Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. Now, what Job is doing in that verse is remarkable. He is naming the constellations, the constellations of heaven. Uh, what's remarkable is that Job is aware of the constellations that we see today and gave the same names to them that we use today with those same constellations. Now, if you've ever looked at a chart of the constellations, you know that the, the layout of those stars in no way suggests the names they are given. When our kids were younger, we would go to the McKinley Museum and go to the planetarium. And they would show the, the, the stars and so forth and show us, you know, all these different constellations. And they would point out, for example, Ursa Major, which is the big bear. That grouping of stars looks nothing at all like a bear, not even close. There's a constellation up there called Leo the Lion. Four stars make up that thing. That doesn't look like a lion at all. <laughs> nothing even close to a lion. However, if you study the information about those constellations, what you're going to find is people did not give names to those stars because of what they looked like. They gave names to those stars because of a truth they wanted to remember. Something they wanted to keep their minds on and name those stars as a reminder. I want you to hold your hand there in Job and go to uh, Psalm 19. Go to Psalm 19. And again, familiar truth, I'm sure, but worth looking at this morning. Psalm 19. Look at verse 1. And folks, I'm sure you know these verses. Let's look at them like you're singing for the first time. Let the truth of these uh, burrow into your heart this morning. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice, speaking of the planets and the stars, where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoicing as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. 
I'll stop there. What's he saying? There is truth that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation by what God revealed in the stars. God has set truth that way. And notice it talks about the star's voice, the star's words. God speaks to his creation by what they see in the heavens. Uh, that's a, a fantastic thing. Uh, we go to, uh, every year we go to, to a, a state park and have a get together with our family. And at nighttime we go out into the parking lot and there's no light anywhere around. It's all dark. And look up into that sky. That is a remarkable thing. That is an amazing thing. As you look up there and see star after star after star. Why are all those there? Well, look at Psalm 19. <laughs> the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day under a speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. No speech, no language. Where their voice is not heard. No matter where you are in this world. You look up there and see the same stars that God placed in that sky. Why do you do that? Because there's truth in those stars. People have perverted the message of those stars, and they go to the signs of the zodiac, try to tell the future, or dictate choices people are supposed to make based on those stars. The devil will do anything he possibly can to obscure God's truth, even the truth God has placed in the sky. That does not change God's plan or lessen its effect at all. Psalm 19 says that all people can see and can understand truth that is revealed in the heavens. And somehow Job knew those same constellations. And there are people across this world who look at those same stars and through them, God reveals himself to them. And here's what I believe with all my heart. I believe that if there is some heathen out in some of the darkest regions of the world and looks up into that sky and he says, I wonder who put all that there. How'd that get there? How'd that all come about? At that moment, God takes the responsibility of getting somebody to them to tell them about Jesus Christ. Those stars are the prompting. Those stars are the first grains of truth that person holds on to and says, I want to know more about this. And God says, I'll let you know more about this. And some missionary somewhere is sent to that place to tell that person about Jesus Christ. God takes on that obligation. God takes on that responsibility. Even the heathen in the remotest part of the earth can know God's truth by looking at the constellation in the stars. Their speech or there's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Is heard everywhere. What a great God you serve. What a marvelous plan he has set up. There is no one like him, folks. No one like him. There is no other religion on earth that worships anything even close to our God. He stands out above all. Look at verse 10. Job chapter 9, verse 10. Which doeth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. Lo, he goeth by me, and I see him not. He passeth on also, but I perceive him not. Here Job is wondering about God. He is simply proclaiming that God is so great. God's wonders are so amazing. There is no way to perceive the wonder of his wonder or his person. Verse 12. Behold, he taketh away. Who can hinder him? Who will say unto him, What doest thou? Again, God's sovereignty proclaimed. Job is aware that God can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it. And the fact that God has taken away everything from Job is not necessarily an indication of some secret sin on Job's part. Rather, it is a clear demonstration of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. And it doesn't hurt for us to realize again, folks, because sometimes we lose track of this. God is God. God is God. He does whatever he wants to do. He is always right. He is never wrong. What he does in your life, what he does in my life, is the exact right thing to do every time. Every time. And what he is doing now, or what he will do sometime in the future, is just what you need. 
and just what I need because he's God. There's no way in the world to, to even begin to perceive who he is and what he does. But he is God. That is what makes God who he is and makes us what we are and places us under his supreme authority. Then Job takes a slap at his counselors. He can't help himself for a moment. Look at verse 13. If God will not withdraw his anger, the proud helpers do stoop under him. Those proud helpers are Job's friends. No matter what they say, they can't do one thing to divert God's plan for Job. If God chooses to pour out his fury on Job, there's nothing or no one who can do anything to change that. They have no power whatsoever. As much as they think they do, they simply don't. Verse 14. How much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him? Job says, there's nothing I can do to reason with God. I can't answer him. I can't argue with him. Job says, I just need to stay quiet and accept what God does. What great thought. What a great response. Verse 15. Whom though I were righteous, yet I would not, yet I, would I not answer, but I would make my supplication to the judge. Job says, I've got a sinful nature. I know I've got a sinful nature. Job knows that even if he was free from this sinful nature, he still couldn't reason with God. All that he could do is throw himself at God's mercy, at the mercy of heaven's court, at the mercy of the judge of the universe. That's all he could do. And folks, I want to remind you again, as I've reminded you already, reminding myself as well, because I need to hear this. It is futile to argue with God over what he allows into your life. Amen. What a wasted effort that is. Don't argue with him about that. It's much better for us, rather than complaining and wondering and arguing with God, spend our time seeking his mercy in our time of need. Much more beneficial, rather than trying to talk him out of it, accept his mercy in the time of it. Much more productive, much better way to use time when you're in the midst of a trial. Now, beginning in verse 16, and going down through the end of the chapter, we have what we call Job's seven ifs. Job's seven ifs. Now, these situations make the point again that Job is at the mercy of God's sovereignty. And so we want to go through these seven ifs this morning and get the truth that Job presents to us from them. And Job, as he goes through this, I want to say again, continues to maintain his stand that there's no secret hidden sin in his life that has brought about his calamity. That's not what it's all about. The first if is, if is found in verse 16. If I had called and he had, not, and he had answered me, yet would I not believe that he had hearkened unto my voice? For he breaketh me with a tempest, and multiplieth my wounds without cause. He will not suffer me to take my breath, but filleth me with bitterness. Job says, even if God would speak to me directly, even if I would talk to God face to face, I am so broken, I probably could not comprehend anything that God said to me. Job is weighted under this burden so greatly. He is so pained and so agonized by this burden, he says there he can't even catch his breath. He is in the grips of the bitterness of this trial that he's going through. And I believe that describes anybody going through the trial, the agony of a trial. Uh, sometimes the trial pretty much consumes us to the point where the emotional and physical energy is simply gone. But I want you to see that phrase in verse 17 one more time. He says there, he multiplieth my wounds, look at those last two words, without cause. Without cause. That takes us beyond what Job is going through. We saw that same phrase in chapter 2 and verse 3. We understand that, that those two words, without cause, are a reference not only to Job's struggle and suffering, but also to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ suffered without cause. 
And when we realize that Job is a type for us of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, the fact that Job describes his difficulty in verse 18 as having difficulty breathing becomes even more significant. I'm sure you're aware crucifixion was a slow, agonizing death. The person was hung on that cross and hung there in such a way they'd have to push up with their feet to get any breath. Their body would begin to sag and collapse upon their lungs. And the only way to get breath would be to push themselves up and catch a gasp of breath and then slope down again. And they would do that over and over for days and days until finally they were too weak to push themselves up anymore. And that's why oftentimes the executioner would break the legs of those ones hanging on that cross. They could no longer push up. They couldn't get breath anymore. And the person on that cross would literally die by suffocating to death. Many folks who died on that cross didn't die from the loss of blood. They died because they couldn't breathe. That's how Jesus died. He died gasping for the breath that he created and couldn't breathe. As he hung upon that cross, gasping and gasping, every gasp of breath he took was another demonstration of just how much he loved you. For you. For you. He loved you that much. That's how much he wanted your sin forgiven. He did that for you. He did that for me. And had you and I been the only ones on earth, he would have gone through that just for you and just for me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? (laughs) Remarkable, remarkable. Second if, found in verse 19. If I speak of strength, lo, he is strong. And if of judgment, who shall set me a time to plead? Job says, it is useless for me to fight God in this situation. It's useless for me to try and demonstrate my strength and somehow show myself strong in the face of this one who is bringing this trial. No one's stronger than God. No one can match his mighty power. And that is also truth, I believe, believer, we need to get a hold of. No matter what we are going through, no matter how much we desire that it would be different, we're never going to change God's mind through our sheer willpower. You're never going to talk God out of anything, (laughs) just so you know that. And you can spend all the time you want to trying. It's not going to work. Now, I know there are children who attempt to do that and are able to do that. You may have heard of strong-willed kids through their constant... Why'd you laugh there, Shannon? Somebody you think you have in mind in particular? Badgering and whining and crying constantly over and over until they finally wear that parent down and get what they want because a kid just won't stop hassling them. And the parent finally says, I'll just go do it. (laughs) I'm tired of hearing it. And they get what they want. That may work with human parents. That'll never work with God. We'll never wear him down. Jeremiah 9.23, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. God will never allow us to manipulate him into giving us what we want. And making deals with God and bargaining with God to get what we want or to get something out of him, that he, get out of something he's allowed, is simply a wasted effort. It is useless to do. As obvious as it may seem, we lose sight of the fact that our strength is no match for his. Don't even try to talk him out of it, because you'll never be able to do it. And you don't want to do it, by the way, because what he's doing is best for you. (laughs) Verse 20. If I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. If Job attempted to justify himself, 
He would face a problem that millions of people face today. His own mouth would give testimony against him. In other words, Job, if he tried to justify himself, would be lying. Now, you'll meet people every day who try to do that. They try to present themselves as righteous. In fact, uh, they believe they are so righteous uh, that they can get to heaven without the help of anybody else. When we talk to them about the Lord, they'll turn you off. They don't want to hear what you have to say. They have no need of Jesus Christ at all because they will tell you they live a pretty good life and they go to church and they'll tell you they were baptized, they give to the poor, all those things, and they proclaim their own righteousness to the point where they believe they're good enough to get to heaven on their own. They believe that when they die, God will let them into heaven solely because of all the good things they've done. You know what Job says about that? You know what Job says about those kinds of folks? <laughs> he says they're liars. They're liars. He says their own mouths condemn them. And John agreed with Job. John said in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Amen. If we say we have no sin, John says you're a liar. In verse 10, he makes it even stronger. If we say that we have no sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If a person says they are good enough to get to heaven on their own, that person is a liar, and they have called God a liar as well. Only a fool would say they're not a sinner. Only a fool. Unless they simply refuse to accept the truth about themselves, every person on earth knows they are sinners by their own testimony and by God's testimony as well. That is a fact from all creation. All people are sinners. Look at the fourth if found in verse 20. He says there, if I justify myself, my own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. Now, I want you to notice for a second here. He says, though I were perfect. Now, the best way to define a word in God's word is to use the context God gives you. Uh, you don't need necessarily to go to the, the original language and all that kind of stuff. Just look at the word of God and see how God defines it for you uh, in his word. So, back in verse, chapter 1, verse 3, God said that Job was perfect. Remember that? He said he's a perfect man. Well, here Job says, I'm not perfect. And so all the, you know, the critics and all the Bible rejectors and so forth find a contradiction in the word of God. We found the contradiction. <laughs> now, of course, there's no contradiction in this book. The only book on earth where there's no contradiction. Yeah. So how do you explain this? How do we find chapter one, God saying Job is perfect. In chapter three, Job saying, I'm not perfect. Well, uh, when God uses that word in chapter one, verse three, he's talking about being complete or equipped or furnished unto all good works. We saw that. When Job uses this word in Job chapter 9 here in verse 21, he's speaking of being without fault or sinless. Look at verse 21. Again, he says, Though I were perfect, yet would I not know my soul, I would despise my life. Job says, Even if I were perfect, even if I were faultless, I would still have to contend with this sinful nature. I would still have to fight it off. That brings us to a verse we've quoted many times in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. Again, it says, if we ha say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Amen. If somehow somebody could live sinlessly, if somehow somebody could live a life without fault, the sin nature would still be fighting them. You may put it off, you may resist it, but it's still there battling you every step of the way, even for that person who was not committing sin, and that person doesn't exist. No matter what the hate behavior we display, you've got this sin nature inside you that draws you to sin all the time. It draws you to the desires of the flesh all the time, and nothing you can do about that on your own. It's simply not a battle you can fight by yourself. You can't change it. Look at verse 22. 
There, this is one thing, therefore, I said it. He destroys the perfect and the wicked. The he that destroys the perfect and the wicked is God. And what he's saying there is all men die, no matter how good a person is, no matter how bad a person is, everybody dies. Death is a great equalizer. Everybody faces it. Verse 23. If the scourge slays suddenly, he will laugh at the trial of the innocent. What's the scourge there? Well, the scourge there is a reference to the devil. Here's a fantastic truth. God uses the devil as an instrument of his own judgment. <laughs> God uses the devil to do what God wants to do. Satan might feel like he is in control, that he's doing what he chooses to do, and that he can do whatever he wants. But in reality, Satan can do nothing except what the Lord allows. God uses the devil to fulfill his own will and his own purpose, and Satan can't do anything about that. How powerful is your God? His greatest enemy is under his thumb, and God has complete control over him. Nothing that he can do without God's permission to do it. One more indication of how sovereign our God is. Verse 23. If the scourge slay suddenly, he will laugh at the trial of the innocent. Notice the scourge laughs at the trial of the innocent. Can you think of anybody who is innocent and devil, the devil laughed at? Jesus Christ, the most innocent person on earth. Nobody more innocent than Jesus Christ. He hung upon the cross that day. And what did the people do as they looked at him on that cross? They mocked him and they laughed at him and they ridiculed him while he hung there. The scourge laughed at the innocent. They, the devil and his associates, thought they had the last laugh. They thought they had finished off the Son of God. That is just how much confidence the devil has until Resurrection Sunday. On Resurrection Sunday, it was God who had the last laugh as Satan and hell and death were defeated. Now, believers, hold on here just for a second and just think about that. Because there's going to be times in your life, maybe today, where you feel defeated. You're going through some difficulty and you feel defeated and you feel downtrodden and you feel like there's no hope and you can't see the way out. We may feel Satan has gotten the victory. You may feel like he has won the battle. Can I encourage you this morning? Hold on to God's goodness. Just see how good God really is. Get into that book or go back into your own life and just get the example after example of just how good God is. Can I tell you something this morning, folks? You will have the victory. There is no doubt about it. You'll have the victory. Now, it may not be here. It may not be here. But sooner or later, the victory will come because that is just how good God is. With God on your side, uh, the believer always has the last laugh. <laughs> and you'll be laughing yourself all the way to heaven when the time comes. The fifth if. That's hard to say. The fifth if is found in verse 27. If I say, I will forget my complaint. I will leave off my heaviness and comfort myself. I am afraid of all my sorrows. I know that thou wilt not hold me innocent. Job said, it was possible for me just to forget this trial. If I could just move on from it, as so many people tell me to do, I can't do it. But even if I could, I still would not be innocent before God. And Job is not confessing some secrets in here, as his friends think that he should. He is simply one more time acknowledging his own sinful nature. Job realizes that he is a fallen man and he is presented before a just, omnipotent, sovereign God. And we've got to keep that truth in our minds all the time. We must never fool ourselves into believing that we're something that we're not. <laughs> Every person born onto this earth is a sin-sick, depraved sinner in need of salvation from somebody outside themselves. Amen. And nobody is excluded from that. And that's what Job is saying there. The sixth if in verse 29. 
If I be wicked, why then labor I in vain? He's continuing in this hypothetical situation directed at his friends. Job says, if I were harboring some secret sin, why would I be foolish enough to think that I could get away with it? If I knew in my heart that I had some secret sin going on, why would I be making such an effort to keep up the appearance as though I didn't have that sin? And I think it's a good truth to be reminded of again as well. Believer, God knows every sin you commit. Every one of them. There's not one sin that gets by him. No matter what you did last week or last month or yesterday, and you may have thought nobody knew about it, including God himself, God knew about it. God knew about it. And let me tell you something else. Every sin hurts God, and every sin interferes with our relationship with him. And if we think that we can allow that sin to continue and think everything is okay as we can conceal that sin, you know what we are? We're fools. (laughs) That's a crazy thought. God knows every sin. You can't hide one thing from him. You can't somehow do something where God doesn't notice it, like he's looking in a different direction when you do it. It just doesn't happen that way. Much more reasonable, as we sang, or we talked about in the verse this morning, uh, acknowledge that sin instead. Recognize that sin. The only reasonable action for a believer to take when they sin is acknowledge that sin and confess that sin. Otherwise, it harms our testimony. It blocks our relationship with the Lord. And eventually, it's going to make you miserable. Amen. It's going to make you sick. The final if in verse 30. If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch and mine own clothes shall abhor me. You know what Job is saying there, folks? Job is saying that self-justification is worthless. That is a foundational truth in Scripture. Job is convinced he has no secret sin in his life that's brought God's judgment. He's also aware there is no amount of self-righteousness that is sufficient to stand before God. Self-justification is worthless. In verse 31, he makes it clear of the very uh, biblical doctrine of the utter depravity of man. And then look at verse 32. For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Job says, because of my sin, I can't approach God. And so what Job is there is pleading for somebody to communicate to God for him, to mediate between him and the Almighty. He's seeking there. Look at the word again. He's looking there for a daysman. A daysman is nothing more than a person who schedules a time in court to speak on the behalf of somebody else. And that's what Job is pleading for here. He wants somebody to go to God's throne and plead his case for him. He realizes that he can't do it. But he wants somebody to go and find, find somebody who will go to God for him. Job cries out for somebody to take up his cause so that God would remove this judgment from him. Now that should just make your heart leap this morning. Because you see, folks, you have a great advantage over Job. The advantage is that no matter what you go through, you've got a daysman. You have a representative at the throne of God. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men. (laughs) The man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. You've got a mediator this morning at the throne. And please hear that verse. That verse says, the man Christ Jesus. You know what that means? That means the man, the Jesus Christ who walked on this earth and walked in your flesh like you did. That's the Jesus Christ who is tempted at all points like you were. That's the Jesus Christ who faced whatever you face in this life, he faced it. That means that Jesus Christ who knows what it feels like to walk in this flesh because he's been there. 
And that is a Jesus Christ who stands before that throne today. That is a Jesus Christ who mediates as God's throne today. And he does that with a full understanding of what it's like to go through the trial you're going through. He knows exactly what you're dealing with this morning. He knows exactly the pain you're feeling. He knows it all this morning. And not only that, he's presented that before the Father this morning for you. And the comfort that God provides and the mercy that he shows in the midst of your trial is exactly what you need because Jesus Christ never misdiagnoses a case. When he presents your case before the throne, he tells God exactly what you need. And God gives you exactly what you need based upon the representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever get the wrong prescription at the pharmacy? Never happened with Jesus Christ. He'll never give you the wrong prescription. Whatever you need in the midst of that trial is being communicated to the very throne of God by your daysmen, by your intercessor, Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Believer, when you're in the midst of that trial, you say, Lord, here's what I need. Here's what's going to help me get through. And Jesus Christ is at that throne. He says, Lord, that's not what they need. Here's what they need. And God will give you exactly what you need, not based on your recommendation, based on his recommendation. The one who's walked in your shoes, the one who knows what you're going through. And he stands before the Father's throne and says, you know what they need right now? This is what they need. God says, they got it. They got it. And you get exactly what you need. He said, I don't believe that's the case. I don't feel like that's the case. Well, are you questioning your mediator? <laughs> you questioning your intercessor? He knows what you need. Amen. Uh, he's much smarter than we are. He's much better at diagnosing these things than we are. Believer, when you stand, when, when you go through that trial, as you're going through that difficulty, please hear me this morning, you are getting exactly what you need. Exactly what you need. Because your advocate, your daysman, is standing before the Father this morning, and he's presenting your case to the Father. I know it's hard to believe. As God stands, as Jesus Christ stands before the Father this morning, he is saying, here's what Sabaka needs right now. And God says, okay, I'll give it to him. And put your name in where I put my name. And he's doing the exact same thing for you. No matter what you are going through this morning, the Father already knows about it because your intercessor has presented that need before him. And God is giving you exactly what you need in response to that. Amen. And we'll do that until God calls you home, however that happens. Now, there may be somebody listening this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior. I believe everybody here is saved this morning. That's great. But we have an audience by Facebook Live and YouTube who are watching this today, and they may not know that Jesus Christ can save them. I want to be clear to you this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have nobody to represent you at the throne of God. Nobody. As you, stand before, as you go through your trial, there's nobody mediating for you because you don't know Jesus Christ. He is not your mediator today. And you can pray all you want to, and your prayers will not be heard. And someday when you die, you'll stand before God and you'll stand there all alone with no Savior to speak for you and claim you as his child. You know what changes all that? A personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. God wants to save you. Uh, Jesus Christ wants to represent you before the throne. All that you need to do is confess that sin to him. Tell him you're a sinner and trust the work of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross as the payment for your sin. And when you do that, sin is forgiven and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becomes your advocate. And from that point, he represents you eternally at the throne of God. Believer, you know what? You're going to die someday. Or Jesus Christ is going to come back one way or the other. And you're going to stand before that throne. The throne of God. I can't even imagine what that's like. You're going to stand before the throne of God himself. 
And you know what you're going to do? You're going to look to your right, and there's Jesus Christ standing right beside you. And Jesus Christ saying, Father, one of ours, one of ours, let him in. (laughs) Whoa. You know why that is? Because at one point in time, you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior. And that took care of all of it. Took care of all of it. And please hear me this morning. As you walk this life, you've got a Savior walking right beside you every step of the way. Knows exactly what you need, provided for you exactly what's needed at every particular moment upon the day. You've got a mediator at the throne of God this morning, letting God know exactly what you need. Believer, rest. Take a breath and rest. He's got it all figured out. He's got it all laid out for you. Just rest and let him take care of things. He will do it much better than you ever could because he's a God who's got it all under control. (laughs) Let's pray.